Hello there and welcome to another Brussels to Beijing policy podcast where we examine how changes in regulation and rules affect commodity markets in Europe and Asia. I'm Sebastian Lewis, Content Director for Greater China, coming to you from Shanghai. And down the line today from our Singapore office, I'm joined by my colleagues Paul Grunwald, Chief Economist Asia Pacific at SP Global, and Oceana Joe, a senior writer in our energy news team. As you know, the big news here in Beijing is that they've just concluded a very high-profile One Belt, One Road Summit, which is attended by representatives from over 100 countries, including the heads of state from you know, mainly Asian countries, but I think Russia, Turkey and Pakistan as well were, were there, as well as the president of the World Bank and the managing director of the IMF. Xi Jinping's keynote address promised a lot more funding for this One Belt or One Road initiative. He said, actually, I think it added up to more than 100 billion US dollars, which sounds like a big number to me. And that would come from various Chinese banks and multilateral institutions. But I suppose let's get back to the beginning. What is this Belt Road, One Belt, One Road policy initiative? And what would it be its impact? The overarching idea is to rebuild old marine and overland trading routes. The 21st century marine through road down to Southeast Asia and to Middle East and Europe. The Silk Road economic belt, the old Silk Road through Central Asia to Turkey and Europe. Now English is called it Belt and Road. Aha, uh-huh, I see. And, you know, what does it actually mean, though? Sure, it's an initiative. We're going to rebuild these kind of old trade routes. But actually, in concrete terms, what does this mean? Well, I think it's, um, it's two things. First, it's more evidence of China's rising role in the, in the global economy. So China's launching uh, these various big initiatives. One's the uh, Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, and now we have One Belt, One Road. But it's really about connectivity. Um, as you said, Sebastian, it's about connecting or reinvigorating all of these old trade routes uh, that have existed for quite a long time. And uh, let's be honest, the Chinese have demonstrated uh, they're very good at infrastructure, so building out various uh, rail lines, freight lines, ports, dry ports, etc. This is something where, you know, China could naturally take the lead in this part of the world. And I think, you know, there's definitely a need for more infrastructure in Asia. But how is this going to be funded? I mean, does One Belt, One Road include a lot of funding? You know, $100 billion, which sounds like a big number to me. What do you make of it, Paul? Um, It is a lot of money, but if you scale it uh, and put it against China's annual GDP, it comes out to about 1%. But one of the reasons I think that Xi Jinping had the big conference this weekend was to enlist uh, various investors, whether it's multilateral funding, bilateral funding. The projects, as you know, cover a large number of countries. So I think there's going to be plenty of investment opportunities as long as these various projects uh, clear the various hurdles of the funders. And is there for the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank part of One Belt, One Road, or is it separate? There's also this Silk Road Fund, and there seem to be a whole load of kind of competing institutions here trying to line up to, to kind of lend money. Yeah, well, let me start. I was at the uh, Asia Development Bank meetings last week, and uh, Jin Li Chun was there, the president of the AIIB. He made it very, very clear that the AIIB is distinct from the One Belt, One Road. It is not the financing mechanism for One Belt, One Road. He did say that um, the AIIB would be looking at various infrastructure projects under this initiative. He certainly did not rule out uh, investing in some infrastructure projects under One Belt, One Road, but he was very clear that these are distinct initiatives. The AIIB is a multilateral development bank focused on infrastructure. One Belt, One Road is a Chinese government initiative. Okay. So, Oceana, turning to actually the most visible aspects of this, the actual project, 
Can you kind of talk us through what kind of things have been developed as part of the One Belt, One Road policy? What kind of project, infrastructure and energy investments have we seen? Actually, the mainly uh, grant projects can support three infrastructure on roads, ports, pipelines, etc., uh, which are actually not very new, such as the Pakistan Economic Corridor linking China's Xinjiang to Pakistan, and also the port investment in Greece by Chinese company Costco, and also the oil and gas pipeline to link China with uh, Central Asia and Russia. But recently, the most interesting thing uh, should be the China-Myanmar crude oil pipeline, which finally started operation most recently, although it has been ready since uh, January 2015. It was designed as an alternative route for China to receive crude oil from Middle East uh, and Africa, easing its dependence on Malacca Strait. But due to the power change in Myanmar, and later, the transaction fee issue, the pipeline did not operate until very recently shipped the first barrel of crude oil to PetroChina's Greenfield refinery in southwestern Yunnan. It is a typical example of the project along the Belt and Road, which providing alternative opportunities, while there is also challenge to geographic, political and economic issues. I think it's worth, of course, remembering. I mean, we always think, and the popular imagination is, that, you know, the One Belt, One Road is all about China building infrastructure, ports, and kind of huge roads and railways for it to expect, you know, export its all its own goods. But it goes both ways, right? China needs a lot of energy, and part of One Belt, One Road, you seem to be saying, is building infrastructure that helps China actually bring energy into the country. So trade goes both ways. Yeah. And it also exports things as well. As China's domestic economic growth has been slowed down, it's likely a way for the country to export its industry over capacity to other countries in need uh, with some kind of uh, financial support, then uh, exchange resource as a return. In some instances, it can help to boost commodity and energy consumption in general. Yeah, I'm, I'm always a bit sceptical about this idea that it helps kind of China sort out the industrial overcapacity problem. Paul, do you have any thoughts on that at all? Yeah, well, I think on one level it makes sense. My reading of that is the uh, amounts we're talking about for One Belt, One Road are just too small relative to the size of the Chinese economy. So I find it hard to uh, believe that um, building out this initiative is going to help China export a huge percentage of its overcapacity in these uh, various sectors. I think the recipient country, these projects are going to be relatively large. We've already mentioned Myanmar. We might want to throw in Pakistan as well. While these projects might be small relative to the size of the Chinese economy, they will be quite sizable and obviously beneficial to the recipient countries. So that's probably a better lens through which to look at this rather than and China exporting its overcapacity. And actually, sort of coming back a bit to the kind of geopolitics around this, you know, the US withdrawing from the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is one of its kind of, the Obama era's become initiative in Asia. What does this mean for China's influence in the region and globally? 
Yeah, I guess, again, we talked about this at the Asia Development Bank meetings uh, last week. It's clearly uh, the case that uh, the U.S. has withdrawn a bit from its uh, you know, previous position uh, supporting the multilateral uh, institutions and arrangements. Uh, that doesn't automatically mean that China sort of takes control or leadership in all of these areas. Let's remember this is largely a regional initiative. It's Southeast Asia, South Asia, and uh, Central Asia, a little bit of uh, Europe in there. But it certainly helps China's status. And uh, I think over time we're going to get some co-funding and participation from the advanced economies as well. But I don't think it you know, allows China to kind of leapfrog the U.S. into the global uh, leadership position. But it clearly has geopolitical benefits for China. I think that's pretty clear. Well, we'll have to wait and see how this all plays out, especially geopolitics. Well, thank you very much, Paul and Oshana, for your insights there. And sadly, that's all that we have time for this month with Brussels, Beijing. Thank you very much for listening to us from here in Asia. We look forward to seeing you next time. 